I, I will argue until I am dead, to my dying breath, that Washington was the best. And so they created the Electoral College, and it was literally created by two junior delegates just like in a side room. I think some people do actually have good intentions. I just think it's misfounded. The vote is what you got, so you might as well use it. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Social Discord, episode 14, The Voting Paradox. I'm your host for today's show, Daylon Turk. And I'm Curtis Medina. Usually we have Kara Tebow with us, but she cannot join us for today's episode, which is unfortunate, but we will carry on without her and she will be with us for the next episode. But today, as we said, we're going to talk about voting because there's an election coming up and that's a little important. Uh, But we're going to start off with democracy. So democracy is founded on the basis of people having the power to decide who serves as the legislative bodies of their country. From the local level to state to the federal government, Every American shares in the civic duty to decide who will take a seat in public office in the United States. It seems pretty cut and dry, and to a lot of people, it is. But from the original writing in the Constitution on how to vote, with no mention of who can or cannot vote, leaving voting laws up to the states, the voting process has been a roller coaster of disenfranchisement, suffrage, legislation, and controversy. Yet, voting remains the most powerful thing we as American citizens can do to move our country along. Even then, when millions of Americans step into the ballot box in November, many don't know where their vote goes, how it's counted, or how much their vote really is worth. In today's episode, we will cover the history of democracy in America, how the voting process works, and why your vote really matters, or maybe not so much. But with that said, let's dive into a little bit of democracy itself. Yeah, that's really important. Um, it's yeah, like I, I think I think something that gets confusing too is like a lot of people wonder why these things weren't more directly mentioned in the Constitution. Mm-hmm. And something I hear over and over again is that um, it was kind of done on purpose. That that the founding fathers they they wanted they wanted the the Constitution to be a framework, but not to spell everything out to the letter because they didn't know what we were going to be dealing with over the entire course mm-hmm. of, of the future. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, so, and they, they, and they knew really well that a lot of governments that started out um, with, you know, really exact laws that could not be changed ever um basically didn't work like mm-hmm. like they went out, they, the country's folded really quickly and so one of the reasons for the success of the US is that we left it so much open but at the same time we've actually been debating since the beginning about exactly like what some of these details should be and of course as things changed such as slavery ending um, there were a lot of questions that simply were not answered by that basic constitution. So it's really interesting that we're, that we're doing this episode. I guess wanted to put that in there. <laughs> no, for sure. No, it's at the time at the, I guess, what would that be? The end or the end of the 18th century, um, direct democracy, which started actually in Greece, um, with the foundings of people like Aristotle, where they believed that laws of civilization should be um, valued as you know through natural law and so they created direct democracy which was a system where literally they would gather the citizens and everyone would vote and the majority ruled and that is democracy just to the definition that is what direct democracy was like a 
did they just do like a hand count kind of thing? Like it was just whoever could show up and those were the people who voted. And then if you couldn't show up or you're too far away or whatever, like they just didn't. I think so. If you're a listener and you know exactly how that worked, um, send us an email, uh, pwbnetwork at gmail.com. From my understanding, it was literally, yeah, they would hold votes in town square in the, you know, capital or whatever. So similar to your like HOA meeting. Yeah, people would show up and they <laughs> they would cast their votes, and that became the law of the land, and that's just how it worked. Um, but at the time, at the um, later, at the latter half of the 18th century, um, people saw direct democracies as really unstable. There was a lot of injustice and confusion because no one really knew one where the laws were really coming from who was to enforce them who was the real authority and it's something that james madison um spoke about quite a bit in uh, federalist number 10 which if you're not yes if you're not familiar with the federalist papers it was basically a campaign of essays that was um, led by alexander hamilton Um, he recruited james madison and one other guy who i can't remember because he's kind of irrelevant um Ouch. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, he's not irrelevant, I guess. He wrote, like, I think, like, nine of the essays and then got sick and decided to stop. Um, Gotcha. But but basically, they uh, wrote this collection of essays defending the Constitution and fighting to basically justify it to the American public to get it ratified. Um, James Madison wrote... I believe 29 of the essays, the other guy wrote like nine, and then Alexander Hamilton wrote like 51 essays, all wow. in the span of six months. It's <laughs> absolutely wow. wild. But I mean, It was basically just them dreaming about what the country could be, what it should mm-hmm. be, what it shouldn't be. And and it's really interesting. Federalist number 10 is widely considered one of the greatest pieces of writing about basically the Constitution and American government that... Like as I ever made, it was basically the exact definition of why the Constitution needed to exist. Um, but it's funny because even within the Constitution, demo- like the word democracy is never even mentioned. Wow. No one, no one ever actually says. No one ever wrote democracy within the Constitution, and part of it is because James Madison wanted to basically warn the people that direct democracy just really didn't work. And because of that, they created this basically system of representative democracy, which is what we see today. But well, just to be clear too, like, I I don't think we've defined it. Like direct democracy is basically that same idea of, of like every vote, one vote, you know, equals, one vote, like direct, yeah. directly from you, directly like, from the citizens, a, right? And like a comparison would be like if tomorrow they did a poll and they were like, "Should we nuke Japan?" Yay or nay, and everyone had to like vote on their phones. Like that would yeah. be direct, and and obviously that's why that can be very dangerous because mm-hmm. if you're somebody who you know isn't super informed and and you're you know whatever you, you vote a certain way, like, like the whole country can shift dramatically overnight. Mm-hmm. And that it, it really at the time, there were no real direct democracies that prove successful. Every single one kind of goes through its courses and they all have pretty much ended up exactly the same. Um, 
which funny enough, there are like our historians who say the same thing about our democracy, where, you know, after about 250, 300 years, it goes through this intense, like divisive period and then it crumbles. So important times, people pay attention. (laughs) I mean, it's, I mean, I mean, you could also say that about the civil war though. I I mean, you absolutely could. It almost did that back then. I always like remind people as bad as it is now and as divisive as it seems now, like it was worse in the civil war, like for sure. We're not there yet. (laughs) You know, it might be a good idea to start working together and, you know, elect politicians that unite us more versus divide us. All of that's true, but we are not quite at the civil war level Mm -hmm. yet. And that's, you should remember that (laughs) because it'll make you less panicked. (laughs) In these notes, you you raise the question of, from the beginning, whether we were actually a democracy or a republic from the beginning. And it's a, it's a big gray area because we're kind of both. And realistically, we are. Um, you look at people, you know, founding fathers like Thomas Jefferson and James Madison, and they fought tooth and nail to protect states, to protect states' rights. Um, And for a gleaning example from if anybody knows anything about Hamilton and has watched the musical Hamilton, they will know that one great example of that is that um, as a um, Secretary of the Treasury, um, or Treasury of State, whatever, um, Hamilton wanted a centralized banking system for the country, and it, you know, it would bring everything together, make everyone more competitive and make the union more competitive. But James Madison and Thomas Jefferson, their argument basically was, well, if New York is in debt, why should Virginia have to pay for that debt? You know, if we're doing fine. So right. they they fought tooth and nail to people still say that today, too. Mm-hmm. I mean, and they do, you know, when there's a hurricane in in, you know, Texas or something like that, you know, then, you know, people in say, I don't know, New York or something are like, well, we didn't have a hurricane, <laughs> you, know, <laughs> right. like, you know, so, I mean, you still hear that today. Um, you know, you always have to kind of remind people that we're a United States and not just like right. your problem state. <laughs> well, and it's, and, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say the other thing I was going to mention what you just said was um, like, I didn't understand until researching this episode that, James Madison and Thomas Jefferson was kind they were kind of the founders of the current conservative Republican party. Yes. And and Alexander Hamilton could be even though they didn't use these terms, you know, could be considered almost like the the founder of the Democratic Party. Mm-hmm. So at the time Democrats, large government, Republican, small government yeah, and state at the basis of it. Um so at the time the starting off um and maybe it was also during the Revolutionary War or just after it. Um, actually, come to think, I think it was just founded right after. But the only political party in America was the Federalist Party. And that's the, you know, the idea of a, a federal government, a centralized government that, you know, controls the, the union, that oversees the union, whatever, serves has a the final union. Say, right. Has a final say over states' rights. And so... James Madison at the time, he was really the only person in opposition or only major person really in opposition of that, basically fighting for the South. And so all of a sudden, Thomas Jefferson comes over from France, where he'd been working as a um, uh, diplomat and becomes secretary of state. And 
resigns as Secretary of State to run for president and creates the first opposition party of the Democratic Republicans. Which, seeing those two words directly together, obviously doesn't, you know, go well with today's definitions. But back then, how political parties were defined was pretty, like, literal. Like, they were right. Democratic Republicans. They were... Republicans, you know, they basically. Were, yeah, they were, <laughs> basically. But they were politicians who were fighting for, you know, democracy, but they also wanted to protect states' rights. So they were the a republic. Democratic Republic, a Democratic yeah. Republican, whereas Hamilton and other, you know, such politicians fought for a more centralized government. And that's the not federal. to say that they, Federalist. you know, the Federalists. That's not to say that they didn't want, you know, states to have their own rights, but they believed that a centralized government was a better way to run the union rather than having basically everyone just run their own ship. Um, What's interesting too is like, like at at what point did they decide to call the country, the United States of America? Like I actually haven't looked that up. Have you run across that anywhere? No. That's a major push towards federalism. I guess is what I'm trying to say. Like I I almost feel like the, the title kind of decided this, this argument, you know, that mm-hmm. we're, we would have states, but we would be united under a federal umbrella. Well, and that that's a big part of it is the like the united because they all the I mean, because the fear was with the monarchy, that's everything is decided within the monarchy. There is no there's nothing else. It's the monarchy. It was King George. Mm-hmm. And so they really wanted to separate that, but they knew that there were these different, you know, districts, these different states within the country that had their own, you know, you could say sovereignty over their region. Mm-hmm. But in order to keep a united people, they knew that they needed something at the top, kind of controlling the grander scheme of things. Mm-hmm. Um, and so by not just saying, you know, this is whatever by saying these are the United States. It's saying that, okay, we are, and it kind of goes to the idea of, well, is it a democracy or is it a republic? It's like, no, it's a republic of states that are formed within democracy. And that's mm-hmm. what they're going for. And that's what they had to defend also within the Federalist Papers. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. And and like one of the reasons that I'm a moderate, definitely like kind of a leftist moderate, but one of the reasons I'm a moderate and not a Democrat, and I have to always like, re- like restate that to people that I'm not a Democrat at all, <laughs> <laughs> not even a little bit. Yeah. Um, um, the reason, but the reason that works though is because I kind of see both arguments. Like, oh, absolutely. You know, like, like you know, I under like there are good uses, and there have been many good uses of states' rights. That that you know, and so to completely cast that out, you know, would be a mistake. And like you know, like for example, I'm going to use a very uh, leftist argument here, but for example, uh, marijuana legalization, you know, is something that has started in the states. It, it would have never, ever, ever happened if it had to just start everywhere at once. But because uh, you know, certain states felt that it was not as bad as it was made out to be, Mm -hmm. they legalized it, proved that it would not destroy the world if people were smoking pot and figured out a way to make money and made it look good. And then now slowly but surely states are adopting it one by one. And that, and that is how 
that is how we do it in this country. We kind of test it out Mm -hmm. in the state's rights. And then we kind of battle it out of like, you know, which state is right. Is it, you know, is it, is it the one that say legalized marijuana or is it the one that's, you know, adamantly against it. And over time we figure out a way to live with each other. And that's, what's really cool about the United States is Mm -hmm. that we do think differently. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of the ultimate reason of why, why the country was formed as a republic rather than just one just glob centralized country was because different regions and different demographics of people have different needs ultimately. So the people in Florida didn't necessarily have the same needs as the people in New York. So is it fair that it's just these umbrella rules that encompass everybody? That's not to say that, we don't need those giant encompassing rules in some situations, but farming law in Iowa should not necessarily be the same as farming law in Arizona. You know, like that's why we Madison and Thomas Jefferson, I guess. No, they, they, (laughs) they wanted slavery to be quite clear here. Um, But modern day, you know, we have to protect the rights of the States because people are just different across the country. And that was one um, reason that Madison in writing Federalist Number 10, why he was so afraid of a direct democracy was because how, you know, in a small community, yeah, it's okay to bring together a town of 3,000 people to do a majority vote. But when you have a whole country with, you know, now 50 states, how how do you do a direct democracy like that? I guess especially at the time nowadays, it's being more talked about because you know technology and everything. But the the fear was how how do you run a direct democracy when you can't wrangle everyone together and you don't know what information right. everyone has? And that's a big the part US of it. The U.S. was such a big country, you know. Mm-hmm. Like I mean, I don't know it for sure, but I mean, it's probably either the biggest or one of the biggest countries geographically that had ever tried to form at once. You know, you compare the entire US to like maybe the entire European continent, you know, of like, I don't even know, 50 countries or something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so yeah, it was an absolute experiment that um, that had no, there was, there was no, there's no like book to work off of. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there was no examples really of how to do this. So it was interesting how they were able to to get so many people across such a, a vast distance with, you know, with the limited travel that they could do at the time and actually form some kind of government. Mm-hmm. Well, and it, what you said, this whole thing was an experiment. It's the American experiment and every single thing they tried set a precedent. And that starts with the first president. And it's kind of the idea that most people think democracy in America started with the Revolutionary War, but really the real test of American democracy came at the end of Washington's presidency with his farewell address, because there's, it's the first example of a peaceful transfer of power and no one really knew how it was going to happen. There's no law or there was no law at the time really saying how long a president can serve. And And Washington was so popular Mm -hmm. that he could have, I mean, easily, easily oh, yeah. could have just said, eh, I think I'll be president for another 10 years. Literally, but <laughs> And he, it would have, I mean, he would have had absolute oh, support. He would have been great. I always say, <laughs> I always say it would have been incredible to see um, George Washington and Dwight D. Eisenhower team up for World War II. It would have ended <laughs> so much faster. <laughs> 
But no, so he was so cool. Washington was so oh, just cool. so cool. Just for everyone incredible. out there that, that you think that you know Obama or Trump, you know, is the greatest president ever. You know, you think that I mean, even Lincoln, you think is the greatest president ever. No, shut your mouth. Shut your <laughs> mouth right now. Like I, I will argue until I am dead, to my dying <laughs> breath, that Washington was the best absolute president we've ever had. Wow. I, mean, <laughs> I didn't know you had such strong feelings for George. You no, know, he I mean he is such he is what we live up to. Every mm-hmm. time, you know, we 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 wonder how good or bad a president is, like we have to judge them against George Washington. He mm-hmm. was so cool. Well, and everything and what he did with this farewell address is he basically wanted to warn everybody like this is not going to be easy. Democracy is not going to be easy because one, everyone's going to want their way. No one's going to want to compromise and everyone's going to fight. And so literally in his farewell address, he warned against partisan fighting. He talked about neutrality. He talked about, you know, that this is the service of the people and let's serve the people. And, um, this really was the first real test of American democracy. And from there, it kind of give up power. Yeah. Um, because <laughs> literally in, and I'm, I'm going to make probably a bunch of Hamilton references, um, because it's <laughs> fresh on my mind, but <laughs> in it, um, they have King George. He sings after George Washington steps down. And one of the lyrics is, you know, I hear George Washington stepping down. I didn't realize that was a thing a person could do. <laughs> and so that was the stigma. That was the mentality of the monarchy that George Washington and everybody was trying to fight, that it's okay to transfer power. And ultimately, George Washington stepping down when there was no law requiring him to was him trying to say, hey, this is how democracy works. Let's set the example. And like, what a better person to set an example than George Washington. Like, <laughs> I mean, and, and not only set the example, I mean, he invented it. Literally, like, yeah, it became, it became precedent. It became law. Yeah. He just made it a thing <laughs> that everyone should do. <laughs> so moving forward, though, you know, the question that we've been kind of looking at is how do we keep a, like an organi- uh, organized, an organized democracy because we, you know, see the concerns about direct democracy and how that just really wouldn't work in a giant republic that the United States is. And so they created what people, there's kind of different words for it, but the word we're going to use is a representative democracy because that's kind of what it is. It's representatives elected to the government that represent the people. Um, and Curtis, you question here because a big concern with representative democracy is that it's basically elites that get elected and they don't necessarily always have the most connection to what their constituents actually want. Yeah, I loved this example um, that I put here. I, okay, so so basically, so, so I found this opinion article in New York Times and normally I don't, I don't share opinion articles because they're opinion they're not they're not right. news i've had i've had people share opinion articles with me that were like completely not factual and they were like see it's a fact i'm like no it's an opinion <laughs> <laughs> so i usually don't do that but what i liked about this was they actually in in the opinion they actually did share a study that they had done that was absolutely mind-blowing and, and, mm-hmm. it, and it definitely it definitely fit with with something that i had suspected for a while that 
basically the the goal of your representative is not to do your will. Like, you know, we always think like, like, Oh, uh, you know, I voted for this person to give me lower taxes or whatever, you know, whatever right. the thing is. Um, and, and if a majority of people voted them in, then that is what they will do. Sometimes that's what they do. And, and it definitely is easier to stay in office if you do that, those things, but it's not necessarily true. Really what you're doing is you're, you're voting someone in that is similar to your beliefs. Um, but actually they're going to do their own will. They're going to do their own, um, you know, deciding of what is right and wrong. And often it is not simply what is the majority opinion. You know, there could you could be living in a state where 75% of people want pot legal legalized. And but if your representative does not is is in that 25%, in most states, they don't have to bring that up to any kind of you know a change of law or anything like that. You know, they can just decide that that's not right for the their state and and completely ignore you and it, and it gets really frustrating after a while because you're like well why aren't they listening like you know how much how cl more clear could it be that a majority of people want you know this law or that law or want low taxes or higher taxes or you know more programs or whatever um and so what this what this article went through was um they did it they did a test they did a, a an experiment <laughs> um and this, the study worked as follows that's it. This is quote. First, we took data from the Cooperative Congressional Election Study, which was an enormous online survey of political attitudes that contains enough participants to allow the data to be informative about specific political beliefs of constituents within thousands of state legislative districts. Then we hired a design firm to create a visually appealing, easy to use website to display the, the constitu constituents' preferences to their legislators. Okay, then we cut. I'm saying we, but this is a quote from this this article, so mm -hmm. it's not literally us. I just want to make that clear. Um, <laughs> so, um, 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 and then we called the uh, and we called the website District Pulse. We then contacted 2,300 state legislators at random. We offered them we offered about half of them access to to this website. Um, we invited the others to view uh, a version of District Pulse that did not offer the information about the attitudes. Um, but rather provided information about the attitudes of all Americans, so not just their constituents. What they found when they did this experiment, when they sent this this direct information about about what their constituents wanted from them, to you know, wanted wanted them to do, only eleven percent of legislators viewed the website at all <laughs> to <laughs> learn what their constituents' policy preferences were. Didn't even try. And among, and among those that did. Their accuracy and understanding their specific constituents' preferences was statistically indistinguishable from the accuracy of those legislators who hadn't seen the seen their constituents' preferences. So basically, it it was it was it was trying to prove like you know does it really matter what the general consensus opinion is in the preferences that your legislators, which are supposed to be representing you, actually do? And the answer was a big fat no, <laughs> you know? So, so yeah, I mean, it goes back to this idea of like, like if they're not representing you, don't, don't they kind of create this idea of elitism, you know, where that, where they become this separate thing that is ruling over you instead of representing you. And it goes back to this idea of whether or not we're democracy or we're a republic. 
and if we're a republic, then you know they're totally okay with whatever is right is right, no matter how many people disagree with them. But if we're a democracy, technically they should be paying attention to these mm-hmm. things, and if and if they don't follow them, we should be voting them out. But that's not always the case, well, and, that and was... we don't always make that case enough. When... <laughs> One of the core thoughts of the representative democracy was basically that not everybody is well-educated on everything. Not everyone can make an educated vote, educated decision. So part of the idea was that, oh, we're going to elect representatives that are experts, that are educated, that have this educated guess. And so part of the defense of that is, oh, well, you know, these people are, are I mean, kind of put it frank, these are our elected smart people and yeah, they know they're, better. they're there to make the decisions for us. Decision makers is is the term that um, I first heard when mm-hmm. I was calling uh, in support of net neutrality. And and the uh, there's an organization, um, oh, blanking out what, uh, shoot, I'm blanking on their, ter- their, their name right this second. But there's an organization um, that, that fights for net neutrality. And, uh, and, and what they do was you call this one number and it asks you like in a more friendly way than if you just call Congress directly, like, you know, where, uh, you know, where your, your, um, representatives are and they'll actually call that number for you directly. You don't have to push any numbers or anything. And it even gives you like kind of a sample script of what you might want to say if you care about this issue. Hmm. And I remember the message that they, they start off with is saying, we'll con- connect you with decision makers. And I almost <laughs> threw my phone like across the room because, <laughs> because I was like, wait, what? Like, these aren't decision makers, mm-hmm. are they? Like, I thought I, as the voter, was a decision maker. I thought they were supposed to, you know, bend to my to my collective will <laughs> you know <laughs> bend to my will <laughs> <laughs> you know and, you know like and and for something like net neutrality which was very popular um at the time that they were trying to take it away you know i just thought well this is a no-brainer like why would you go against the majority but since then i've come to understand they really are decision makers mm-hmm. they have to decide whether or not the majority is right and it, and even if they are right, if that's correct for their state or their you know for their their voting block, well, and it's it's taking the extreme of what a representative democracy is, and there are some states that have taken efforts to kind of step away from that, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. But um, in instances of um, uh, states that have um, oh, what is it like initiative voting or whatever it is, yeah, citizen initiatives, citizen initiatives, um, which we'll talk about in a little bit. Um, but even just the the term decision makers seems so belittling to the voters. Yeah, it does. Right? Like, okay, you got us into office. You got us, you know, you gave us the job. Now, like, we're going to make decisions here. <laughs> like, that's, yeah. that's just not the verbiage that was created, that was written in the Constitution. I mean, imagine if you were driving a car... And and it just kind of took a suggestion of where you wanted to go. <laughs> you know, you're like you're like uh, I need to go left. I need to go to work. And it's like like actually, I think we're gonna go right. <laughs> like what? You know what? I appreciate your input, but uh, we're gonna do something a little bit different here. I mean, yeah. it pisses me off when I call uh, or write my representative, and they send me this um, you know canned response back. That basically says, I heard what you said, but I'm doing the opposite. Right. <laughs> and I get that a lot <laughs> well, with my representatives. And it's the great fear of 
politicians, you know, getting into office and then basically following their own individual agenda. Right. But apparently that's what they're supposed to do, though. They're decision makers. I mean, like how, you know, how can you blame them for for doing that? I mean, because, you know, the other extreme would be they would be robots, basically. You know, they would Mm -hmm. just take a survey and they would just go bloop, bloop, bloop. That's the that's the way we're doing it, because majority rules. And that obviously is very dangerous as well. (laughs) So they need to have some kind of aspect of decision making and, and, you know, knowing right from wrong and all these things that can't be lost. But at the same time. You know, according to that that um, that study, they're not even they don't even care what the majority think. And I feel mm-hmm. like they should at least weigh that very, very, very heavily against their own opinion, mm-hmm. you know, because that, that's what's scary about electing someone who's very different than yourself. You know, like, for example, uh, you know, there's a straight person could elect a gay person, you know, but but like up to now, one of the main reasons that they haven't is because, you know, they can be like, oh, well you know, I don't agree with that personally. And I always say, you know, you don't have to agree with it personally. Like, like they're representing you, you know, you're not representing them. And, and yet here's the argument against that, that, you know, how can you elect someone that's dissimilar from yourself and trust that they're going to have your best interest in mind when, you know, studies like this say that they don't, you know, and a lot of it comes down to, unfortunately, over time, how, the interest of politicians, of, of representatives, how, the reason why it's changed over time, a lot of it has to do with money. A lot of it has to do with where their campaign dollars are coming from, where their donor money is coming from, because they're mm-hmm. going to have to appeal to those interests in order to keep their seat, in order to win election. And a great example of that, if you listen to our Young and Political series with Daniel Carlino, he had addressed climate change issues to, I think it was John Tester, Basically mm-hmm. saying, the hey, Democrat in Montana. Yeah, basically saying, you know, hey, you supported, um, you, you say you believe climate change, you believe global warming, so why don't you denounce, you know, these oil and gas companies? And, you know, just Tester kind of danced around it, and then eventually straight up said, I can't because I can't win this election without their money. Right. I mean, and and it's definitely a good argument for term limits as well because mm-hmm. if you if you know that you're out of the job in four years anyway, you're probably more likely going to do actually what's right, not mm-hmm. what is going to get you elected again. Well, and, and a lot of people say, though, that their argument against term limits is why kick out you know a good senator or a good representative just because you know of an arbitrary term limit. But that to me, I say, oh, sorry, if, that I say though, if they did their job successfully what's wrong with, you know, passing the torch to the next person in line? I mean, I think that someone who is in Congress, or so I should say in government at all, like, I think they, they should definitely have a time limit to, to their reign. Um, you know, I mean, I, what I guess what I'm saying is Congress and I'm not necessarily if you're an office clerk or something like that. But, <laughs> if but, you're you an know, administrator. If, if you're, if you're elected, like, like, I don't like this idea of career politicians. Um, I understand that if you like the politician, then being in office for like 40 or 50 years is kind of cool. Um, but I think we, we have to give up that. I mean, just because one person does it right doesn't mean that everyone should be able to do it. I mean, that's the whole reason that we put term limits on presidents because, you know, we were, we had a president that got elected four times and, 
and it was like whoa (laughs) (laughs) like we are getting dangerously close to you know to a king you know here i mean and and and, uh, even if you agree with them there has to you have to you know exchange it you have to change hands you have to change the guard you know because it it doesn't matter if you're right or wrong you have to give it up um Mm -hmm. that's what why it was so important that washington did that initially because Everyone loved Washington. Washington would have been the best president for the rest of his life, without a doubt. <laughs> that wasn't the case. It was because, you know, we needed we needed change. We needed to constantly be moving forward mm. and not be stuck. And that's but that's what we have with, you know, with with people who who kind of dig their heels into whatever job, whether or not they're actually good at it, um, you know, is kind of a, like up to for debate. But whether or not they should be able to stay in a job for forty or fifty years. I mean, I don't know. I don't, I don't. I don't think that's even much of a debate. I think we we definitely have to get get them out and get new new blood in. Well, I mean, ultimately, that's why Washington stepped down after two terms was because would you rather set the precedent that you know a president can serve for four years, and you know if if they turn out to be tyrannical, if they turn out to be awful, the one that people have the power to you know kick him out of office, but two, he's only serving for four years or would you rather set the precedent of serving for 40 years and then all of a sudden everyone after that can follow that you know (laughs) he understood what that precedent meant moving forward with american democracy yeah and and two i mean even if we had term limits like you could still basically spend your whole life in politics i mean it's you know let's say you know you had to be a uh you know um uh in the House representatives for you know no more than eight years. Then you can only be in you know the Senate for no more than twelve years or whatever. Like, my God, that's twenty years. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, that's not that big of a of a change. It just means that you have to shuffle around a little bit. It just means mm-hmm. that you you know just because you're safe this time doesn't mean you can just rest and ignore everything that your constituents want you to look at. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, it's it's funny because we look at some of these people that have been in Congress for, you know, 40, 60, 30, 20 years, whatever. And there are so many of them that still push the policies of yesterday. But even then you get guys like Bernie Sanders, where they've been pushing the same agenda the entire time. They've been consistent over their entire political career. Yeah, like 40 years. And now their agenda is more in place with... A, lot, a very large population uh, amount of the population mm-hmm. and so it, that's an argument of like well if, if someone's been consistent and it's still a major part and a growing part of views within the american public should they have to go mm-hmm. but then you get lo- people coming in like aoc that kind of carry the torch yeah i i love how like I mean, you know, how I always like compare things to movies. I'm a big movie buff. Mm-hmm. And so like, I love how like, like a lot of these things are, are covered very like subtly in some of these political movies too. Like what came to mind was um, my fellow Americans with Jack Lemmon and, um, oh gosh, what's the other guy's name? Um, 
James Gardner. Mm-hmm. Like if you haven't seen it, you definitely should check it out because it's, it's essentially, it talks so much about this, but it doesn't in like a hilarious way <laughs> um, of like, you know, like basically the will of the people is what, is what they say. And, and, you know, I think one of the lines is like, the guy says, will of the people, my fanny, all you guys, all these people, like, like just crying for different things. And like, you know, you can't, you, you can't, you can't make sense out of any of it. Like, you know, like kind of like we tell them what, what, uh, what their agenda should be, not the other way around mm-hmm. is sort of the argument. And like, and, and that, that is interesting because I think that's how a lot of politicians see it. You know, they don't read these things because, yeah. because they're more about creating the campaign to, to get others on board with them, not, not using their platform to express the politics of their constituents. I, I, Does that I, make sense? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you you think of how many politicians get into the game of this is what I'm going to prove. This is what I'm going to do. And I'm going to convince the people of that. Yeah, I mean, very few people wanted to build a wall before Donald Trump. Oh, absolutely. That was not a thing that people had been wanting to do forever. Like that was a joke. It essentially was a joke. And there's even like some anecdotal evidence that that like that wasn't even the actual intention that his his like handlers were just trying to get him to remember like the the idea of border control and they said something about like you know, we might build a wall or something like that or we have a wall and he literally went out and was like build the wall build the wall and everyone started chanting it mm-hmm. and you know and, and and then that became what everyone wanted all of a sudden so i mean I, it definitely is a lot more of the of the politician creating the movement versus the movement creating the politician mm-hmm. well i mean and you've got this quote here from a vox article and it's talking about basically america's stance towards russia and historically i guess the ussr russia has not been super great um nope. especially in <laughs> relation relationship for sure <laughs> very strained relationship with the u.s and everyone would agree with that. You know, we all hear the Mr. Gorbachev tear down this wall from Reagan. Like, it's one of the most popular political quotes ever. But all of a sudden, because of Trump's admiration of Putin and because of Trump's weird relationship with Russia and kind of dismissal of what Russia's been doing in, you know, forever, basically, uh, with Putin, all of a sudden, the attitude of... Trump's constituents towards Russia is kind of just not there. Like it's, it's not the same. It's changed. Much more friendly. It's yeah. much more friendly. It's much more like, um, ignoring of history, I guess. Mm-hmm. I mean, even though like, even though not that much has actually changed in Russia, like, like Americans view of Russians have really, mm-hmm. really dramatically changed. Um, just in a very short period of time, it was very weird to me to see like Russians invited into the white house. Like that was something that happened almost right away when Trump, Trump became president. Not that we shouldn't be friendly towards, towards other countries and try to, you know, build that bridge or whatever. But, but it wasn't like a, Hey, come over here and, and we're going to talk about how to, you know, make Russia, uh, you know, a better democracy or, you know, mm-hmm. or, you know, improve, you know, anything in your country. It was like, Hey, just come over here and check out the white house with me. <laughs> like you don't have to do anything of special <laughs> like it's, hang it's out with me. what people will convince themselves of because somebody that they follow shares this belief is mm-hmm. absolutely wild 
Like crazy. And everybody does it. Everybody does it. If there's an idol, like some famous person, anybody that you see and all of a sudden they have this belief, there is such a high chance that even if it's a small thing, you've done this exact thing. The only difference is that, you know, this is the president of the United States and Russia, but everybody does it because you see some and it's like, oh, well, if, you know, if LeBron James believed this, if LeBron James (laughs) does this, maybe I believe that too. And it's such a powerful thing within politics. And it's a lot of politicians use it to their advantage to push things that they want to push. Yeah, it's really, I mean, that is the actual power of the president. You know, I mean, like, I think people overestimate the actual power the presidents have, you know, the biggest things usually are executive orders, things like that. But, Mm -hmm. but, you know, other other than that, like their main, main power is just getting people focused on some, some, something, some kind of, you know, agenda. Um, And, and that's why a lot of times, like, even though I'm moderate, a lot of times I will lean toward whatever candidate actually has the most interesting agenda that I want to talk about, you know, like, like I find it really sad that like, you know, like, even though I'm, I don't agree with Obama on a lot of things, I really liked that we talked about healthcare and we talked about helping people who are sick during Obama's era. Mm -hmm. And as soon as Obama was gone, that just went out the window. And, and we started talking about walls and we started talking about, you know, uh, you know, net neutrality. And we started talking about like a lot of things that like, that were like, I thought were settled. (laughs) I, you know, I, I kind of, I kind of was hoping that we could leave to, you know, it wasn't as big of a problem, you know, to me as, as, you know, say having good healthcare, like that healthcare directly affects me, whether or not somebody's coming over the border illegally, okay, handle it. But it's, it was not what I wanted to talk about. Like it was not, the agenda that I wanted America to focus on. And it's been so, so irritating that, that, you know, the Republicans have been so unwilling to continue that conversation and actually come up with a plan Mm -hmm. to make the healthcare system better. Instead, they focus the agenda on, on these things that, that, you know, they sound good and they make good like audio bites, but they don't actually affect your life in any real, real way directly, you know? And it's just, it's so sad, like that we have to, we have to shelve all these important things for four or eight years um, in order to follow their agenda. Well, and the fact that I, in order for me to get health insurance right now, I don't have health insurance. And in order me for me to afford it, I would have to pay like $900 a month. Oh my gosh. Yeah, it's absolutely wild. And yeah. here, Trump took away the like the the mandate where you have to have health insurance. That that was a really bad part of Obamacare because you're forcing people to buy something that not everyone can afford. Um, which I'm like, okay, great. Now I, I'm I'm not forced to pay for something that I can't afford. But then again, I don't have health insurance. Um, mm-hmm. And they have yet to propose a plan for healthcare in America, and I don't understand why. And that's not what I voted for, um, which is my uh, segue. <laughs> but um yeah so all of this comes down to the fact that everybody that we put in office everything that happens theoretically is supposed to be because of our votes and a lot of times how we vote how that vote gets put into play why we vote how your votes actually counted isn't super clear and that's kind of because the founders didn't really consider it till the very end of the Constitution. So, 
in the Constitution, they... What a thing to leave for the end. Right. It's, it's absolutely... And I didn't really realize this until we started researching. So, in the Constitution, they don't... So, they lay out, basically, how the voting process happens. So, um, being a republic, they left local and state elections as um, popular vote. They left it as a direct democracy within the states, which is fair um, because, you know, it's laws and, you know, things that are happening directly to you within your state. So, yeah, it should be a popular vote. That's how it should happen. Um, and that's but, why states' laws change more more drastically. Yes, and that's why exactly. you know, every year there's there's a state that allows something that that you know is not being allowed federally, but in that state they're allowing mm-hmm. it. They're they're more molded to the people and the interests of those people within those states. Um, and then with their idea of representative democracy, they continued that with the creation of the electoral college, and. Not a not a college for electricians. No, un, uh, unfortunately, not. that is trade school. Um, but it's a mama's family joke. I just had to throw it in there. I'm sorry. <laughs> That's what um, says. I'm sorry. So basically, what the electoral college is and how it was put into the constitution, it was literally right to the end because no one could decide how to make voting for the president and how to make voting for senators and whatnot work. I'm or I guess just the president. Sorry, I apologize. And so they created the Electoral College and it was literally created by two junior delegates just like in a side room, like the last day of the Constitutional Convention. And then they're like, great, this is the best we can do. And then they signed it. <laughs> and that was it. And so it's established in Article 2, Section 1, Clause 2 of the U.S. Constitution. It was modified by the 12th and 23rd Amendments. And um, basically, the Electoral College is a group of elected electors that elect for the people. And so there are 538 members, one for each representative and senator and um, of the states, and then um, three to represent Washington, D.C. Um, up until about the mid-1800s, um, uh, electors were selected by um, uh, legislators, um, but now they're kind of selected through popular vote a little bit. Um, basically, how they're chosen basically through um, like the parties in each state, whether it's at... Um, there's two ways of doing it, either at a party convention or by a party committee. Um, basically, how it works is you have, say, Florida. Florida's got 29 electoral votes. So, in, and actually, there's this website here. It's the ncsl.org. Um, it's got, and it's in our notes, it has a great little article about the Electoral College. Um, but basically, in the spring and summer um, of an election year, um, they are nominated and elected, and so Florida, 29 electorates, um, or electoral votes, they um, each, the Republican, the Democrats, they all nominate 29 of their own electors, and there are basically two different ways of how the electoral votes are awarded within an election, and the main one is winner-take-all, which... Um, that's in 48 states. 48 states. And James Madison hated it. He warned against it in the Federalist Papers. Because <laughs> um, basically what it is, is 
if the popular vote, it's, and Curtis and I kind of disputed this before the show, whether it's by district or by just the direct popular vote of the people, either way, it doesn't make a huge difference. It does seem like it's popular vote, though. I, I, I checked with two different people, and gotcha. they, they, they said the same thing. So I do think it's a popular vote by the state. Mm-hmm. So basically, if Florida has a popular vote, meaning the majority vote... Uh, 51% for, or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. For yeah. Republicans, that means Florida sends all 29 of their Republican electors to Washington, D.C. So no matter... so. The fear that like Madison, James Madison had was that basically made all of the minority votes basically irrelevant. Yeah. So like if you're in Florida and you're and you're a Democrat and and, you know, 51 percent of the vote went towards Republicans, essentially, even though it was very close, all of that other 49 percent of the vote just kind of disappears. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of why a lot of people feel like their vote doesn't matter. And yeah. that's kind of like to the title of this episode about the voter paradox is like, does your vote matter or does it not? And the, the answer is kind of yes, kind of no. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and, and like the reason that people feel like it doesn't matter though, is because if you live in a state that just gets blown away one, one way or the other, um, you feel like your, your vote doesn't matter because it can be super close and still you're, elector representatives go for the other guy or the other girl and uh and it's uh um it it can be quite frustrating Mm -hmm. (laughs) and the other you know the other thing i wanted to mention that i don't think is in the notes but is really interesting is is uh the amount of electors is dependent on um the amount of people that live in in the state so Mm -hmm. some states have a lot more than others for example, Montana, I believe, has three right now yep. um, because because their population is just around a million people. But starting in, I think it's oh, I, want, I don't, I shouldn't say starting in the next few years, um, not for 2020, but in the next few years, uh, Montana is actually going to get a fourth elector vote for the first time in like seven Ooh. years, seven years. Yeah. But what happens is they don't, since it's supposed to be a representation of 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 um, like kind of an equal representation of population across the whole country, they can't just add an elector. They actually have to take an elector from mm-hmm. another state, um, like the the placeholder of the elector, not literally the person, but um, and from another state and give it to the new state that has a higher population. So what ends up happening is, you know, a state like, say, New York, which actually has way more people, will actually start getting their electors watered down in order to represent another state um, that is underrepresented at the time to try mm-hmm. to balance it out. And what ends up happening is is uh, rural, rural citizens that live in, in these states that have so far, far less people than the bigger states um, start getting underrepresented um, in the in the overall count because their state because all the states are winner take all. And, and end up shifting so dramatically one way or the other. So this is a problem that's already happening, and it's going to get so much worse over the next 20 years or so, where it's predicted that in 20 years, like uh, the, it was like 70% of the population is going to live in like what, like 10 states or something mm-hmm. like that. I mean, and so they're, they're only going to be represented by by you know those 10 states, and and the rural states are going to start becoming so much more powerful with so so many fewer people and it's a problem that we don't exactly know how to solve well and that's even a fear uh and it's honestly a myth um 
with just doing a straight national popular vote is that it would be, you know, the same four big cities deciding every election. And because the cities are predominantly blue, it would be consistently, you know, blue candidates winning. But if you look, there is a, in one of these articles, I can't remember where it is, um, they, the New York Times does a great video basically busting voting myths. And they looked at the number of voters from the past like 70 years or whatever, and the amount of Republicans that voted and the amount of Democrats that voted over the past 70 years is virtually the same amount. Yeah, I mean, you made this great point about how, you know, even though even though the argument is, you know, if if we did a popular vote versus this representative that that the um, that the politicians would only go to the the big states and they would completely ignore the rural states, that's the argument. But you made a great point though that like it all it actually wouldn't happen that way. Like if if uh, it might actually benefit Republicans, <laughs> even though they're usually the ones against this idea. Like you know, if the entire state of I don't know, uh, you know. Uh, say all the Republicans in Texas and, and Oklahoma and Kansas, all these different things like directly had proportional um, or not proportional um, popular vote against all the Democrats in in uh, in California or something like that. Like you actually would offset those more than you would mm-hmm. um, and enable them. You know, because there's a lot of people in California, I think about, think about a third of the state actually votes Republican and their votes get completely washed out in our current system. But if we did a a direct vote, even though it's it's arguably unconstitutional, um, even if, if we did something like that, um, then, you know, it actually could represent rural voters even more than they are now. Mm-hmm. And one of the actually other main um I guess reformations that people are looking at for the electoral college and one it's, it's within still within the electoral college, but it seems more fair to a lot of people than the winner take all system is the district system. And right now there's only two States that do it, Maine and Nebraska. And so with the district system, how this works is um, we'll use Nebraska, for example, there are one, two, three, I think three voting districts within Nebraska and basically, each district gets one electoral vote, and then there's two extra that go to the candidate who wins the popular vote of the state. And in the, oh, what was that? Um, in the 2008 election with uh, Barack Obama and John McCain, this was actually the first time the state was split. And so Obama won one district, so he got one electoral vote. And the McCain won two district. So on December 14th, when the electorates go to D.C. to um, to place their votes, one Nebraska electorate was a Democrat and then the other four were Republicans. So a lot of people see this as a more a more representative means of running the electoral college. Well, and it, it basically what it solves is if you live in a state if you, that you disagree with their politics and you live in an area that just happens to be, you know, the bright blue spot or the bright red spot um, within it, you actually can get an elect an elector to vote for your person, mm-hmm. uh, even though the state goes the other way. And so it's, it does kind of solve that problem. My concern though is, is I feel like, like 
like to, to to what extent do we keep cutting like like our districts down like right now we count by state which is kind of an arbitrary thing now because you know you 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 if you live in South Carolina or North Carolina for example like North Carolina might go democrat and South Carolina might go republican but like if you just shifted the lines a little bit like what they do with gerrymandering <laughs> you know i mean it would be a very different uh outcome you know so i, I guess and so that's they do it by state right now but if they cut it down to districts like aren't we just kind of creating like like states within states essentially like we're just they're just smaller smaller representations of our of our same votes it it seems like people keep trying to answer the question of how to make voting more fair by just making the places by which we count the vote smaller and smaller and smaller mm-hmm. and that's to get the votes to a more specific I mean, count, honestly. I wonder if this would be abused in the gerrymandering system. Basically, gerrymandering is this idea of like, of like how you draw a district a different way to either give mm-hmm. you a an advantage or give the opponent a disadvantage. And you can kind of do a weird squiggly line and, and group together all of the supporters and where they live in the neighborhoods for one candidate so that you can water down their votes or you can help your own you know i wonder like if this would be abused if we went for this system because like with state borders you can't do that like you couldn't just be like you know this year uh north carolina is going to go down you know it's going to be a little more southern you know this year just for this this time of it Mm -hmm. next year we'll move the line a little bit more but with districts like this actually happens like every single election where the people who are in power get to draw the lines and they're supposed to do it in a in a very equal way but there's always these mm-hmm. cases of of where they're doing it unfairly and people get their vote watered down mm-hmm. and the unfortunate but true thing is that consistently through the history of gerrymandering the majority of gerrymandering cases have been conducted by republicans um democrats have gerrymandered and yes it is a, a thing that happens over party lines but Historically, when you look at politicians and one who do partake in gerrymandering, it has been consistently more Republicans doing it. Um, I think recently there it's been more back and forth, but mm-hmm. I think you're right. Historically, I think there have been more cases of um, conservatives doing that, whether or not they were called Republicans at the time. Um, but it has been kind of back and forth. I don't know. I feel like, I feel like the more kind of brazen ones happen with Republicans now. Mm -hmm. Um, Like there was the thing in, I think it was North Carolina where they, where the Supreme court had to strike down their proposed drawing of new districts because they expressly said that they drew the districts in order to um, put, two different areas that were not really very close to each other of black populations in one district and that, and to do it against, to do it for reasons of race is actually illegal, Mm -hmm. but, but it's actually not illegal, but should be not illegal to, to draw lines of districts over partisan values. Like you could decide that this half of the city is primarily black which usually means that that they'll vote Democrat, ninety percent or so vote Democrat, um, and so you know you could just decide that all the Democrats are going to be shoved into this one district, but these other two districts are going to be you know 
um, you're going to divide up the rest and, and it'll be like strong Republican um, areas or whatever. Um, so you get a lot of cases that that are trying to figure out like the intentions of the politicians that draw them. And I've always wondered why we leave it to politicians at all. Like, I, I don't really understand why there isn't some kind of like computer program that can truly randomize it mm-hmm. and just get rid of the ability to gerrymander at all. But it just seems to be like the the party that's in power, if long as they have the power to kind of yeah, basically, it, they don't have a problem with it. <laughs> they only have a problem with it when it's the other party doing it. No, it's we we're talking about all this too, and it's about the presidential election. It's about you know voting for a federal office. Yet uh, we're talking about states. We're talking about individual states' issues that are decided by the states for a federal election. Um, but as we talked about earlier, and this is one means of people trying to basically circumvent the electoral college is, um, through what, um, you brought up as direct citizen initiatives, which I personally hadn't really heard of before until this. Um, yeah, I, I don't think I really had, but it's a pretty interesting way of kind of escaping the idea of the um, representative democracy and kind of giving the vote directly to the people and deciding what happens in the states. And it's being used more and more par- mm-hmm. partially because people are becoming aware of it, but also because as Congress gridlocks more and more and is, and, and is less and less able to actually pass any kind of meaningful legislative legislation, um, it becomes the, the, people that are actually like okay we've waited for this for too long we're just gonna do it now Mm -hmm. and so can you talk a bit about how uh direct citizen initiative actually works yeah um so um so if you live i think it's about half the states in the country um have it um if you if you live in a state and you're voting and it says um, you know, uh, you know, sh- uh, should we do this? Um, yes or no, uh, whatever it is, whether it's again, marijuana legislation, which is on my mind because in Montana that's on, on the ballot this time. Um, or, you know, it could be redistricting, could be, it could be all kinds of different things, whether or not you're going to vote for a, um, a, you know, a, uh, increased budget or something for like bus lines and things like that. Um, if you live in a state where you see a lot of that stuff and you're, and your ballot's fairly long, you probably live in one of the states that citizen initiatives happen because um, those are the only states that are actually getting anything done right now. <laughs> um, you know, uh, there's less and less of politicians actually changing laws, um, whether or not they need them <laughs> to be changed. There's less and less of them actually doing that. And there's more and more of people um, doing it themselves. So the process is you uh, you have an, you have something that you want to, to be changed, and your politicians are not um, doing a good job in doing so. So you decide to get a certain amount of um, signatures to get something put on the ballot. And in the states that that allow it directly, um, if you get that percentage of people signing that it should be on the ballot, um, it just automatically gets put on there. If you don't live in a state that allows that, like South Carolina, for example. They have a very, very bland, boring, short um, ballot that has no initiatives on it because because it's not allowed. And and you could you could get all you could get every person in the state signing 
um, that they want something changed. But if your representative decides that it's not for them, there's absolutely nothing in the law to force your representative to listen to you. Whereas in these in these citizen initiative states, um, you bypass that that gridlock right away, and and you get it just directly on on the ballot. So at the very least, what it does is it puts it in people's minds and it sends a really strong message to your government, your state government, that hey, we want this, and and then it forces that the politicians to take a side on it, mm-hmm. and if they don't take the popular side, they usually get voted out. So it's it's a really great way of getting things done and keeping them on their toes of of what is important to the constituency. Um, but there's a lot of people that stop want to stop it as well. Mm-hmm. In this uh, article um, for the Atlantic, talking about citizen initiatives um, in 2016, so basically since 2006, um, citizen initiatives on the ballot have been on a pretty steady decline. In 2016, the number of citizen initiatives that made state ballots 71 was more than double the total amount from 2014. Um, and if if you want to know how to take direct action within legislation in your area, in your state, take a look because every state, like how they decide how these citizen initiatives can get onto the ballot is different. Every Most states, like there's groups of state that follow the same uh, criteria of how it happens. A lot of them, it's through petition and you have to get a X amount of uh, signatures, which the number of signatures you need is kind of based on the amount of voters um, that were in the previous election, which one reason why 2016 had so many citizen initiatives on ballots that year is because the previous voting season, there was very low voter turnout. It's all of a sudden. I love that because it's like, it's like, it's kind of an argument for not voting sometimes. <laughs> right. Don't vote this time, but next time hey. really put the work in. <laughs> Like, hey, you you want this legalized uh, in a couple years? So you know, don't knock yourself out. Just stay home. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like the opposite message. I love how like terrible that is. If you, if you really want direct change, <laughs> pay attention to the citizen initiatives because it is actually a, a pretty remarkable form of voting within the American democracy that is supposed to be representative. <laughs> Yeah, I, th- I think it's really the only way that we're moving forward right now. I mean, the states that have it are all the ones that are on the cutting edge of of, of progress. I mean, and, and it's not all I don't agree with everything that has passed through citizen initiatives. I mean, Proposition 8 in California that banned same sex marriage um, was definitely a very negative citizen initiative that that happened. But what it did do, though, is it led to the Supreme Court case where they made it legal for um uh, to or I should say illegal to um, to discriminate against same-sex couples, and that was based on on them throwing out Prop 8. You know, so even when it's wrong, it actually does create change in a very fast mm-hmm. way where it would never happen otherwise. So, you know, as far as marijuana legalization, for example, um, it you know that is the, that is the last states to pass that will be the ones that don't allow citizen initiatives because the citizens want it. Absolutely. It's like 70% or something crazy high. It's the politicians that don't. (laughs) It's the politicians that don't. You know, we look at um, the citizen initiative, which is kind of, I guess, states' ways of creating their own direct democracy. Um, uh, 
but we look at the issues that happen within the electoral college and some of the controversies that surround the idea of electoral college. And one of them is faithless, faithless voting or sorry, faithless electors, which obviously with um, citizen initiatives, it's coming directly from you. But a big concern about faithless electors is do we know that the electoral college is truly voting in favor of what the American citizens want. And there are There's many... There's no law that protects people. Nothing. Nothing federally. So there, there's absolutely no federal law that basically says, hey, you're part of the Electoral College, you need to follow the vote. Um, but there are instances where electors didn't vote with basically the way that they're supposed, or the way that they're pushed to vote. And as we said vote. before, they're elected by the the political parties so they're all supposed to vote republican and they're all supposed to vote democrat and then within that as well they're supposed to vote for the candidate that <laughs> the majority vote the um and so in um where is it here in uh um 2016 there were seven faithless electors which is the most since 1972 and it was three Democrat electors um, from Washington State, cast their votes for Republican Colin Powell instead of Hillary Clinton. One Democrat elector from Washington State cast their vote for Faith Spotted Eagle, um, a woman who is a member of the Yankton Sioux Nation. Uh, one Democratic elector from Hawaii cast his vote for Bernie Sanders instead of Hillary Clinton. Uh, one Republican uh, elector from Texas whoo, um, cast his vote for uh, John Kasich. Um, instead of Donald Trump and a uh, Republican elector once again from Texas cast his vote for libertarian Ron Paul. Um, and That's actually super scary if it was actually a closer election that this actually could make the difference between who wins and who loses. Mm-hmm. Well, and that that's like a bit of that's why the electoral college is so scary because it's not the people that are deciding the election. It's the electoral college. Like, once the votes get in, in reality, when you cast your vote, you're not voting for the candidate. You're voting for the elector that you're trusting to then vote for the candidate for you, basically. Um, But as we said, there's no federal law that requires an elector to follow your vote. With that said, however, there are 31 states, including Washington, D.C., that have passed laws disciplining faithless electors in different ways um, whether it's a fine whether it's you know imprisonment whether every each state well, the has big one was south carolina wasn't it didn't south carolina have like the worst I thought, oh yeah, <laughs> yeah let's hear so <laughs> most yeah, most to... of the laws cited above require electors to vote for the candidate of the party that um that nominated the elector or require the elector to sign a pledge to do so some go further Oklahoma <laughs> imposes a civil penalty of $1,000. In North Carolina, the fine is, or is $500. The faithless elector is deemed to have resigned and a replacement is appointed. In South Carolina, an elector who violates his or her pledge is subject to criminal penalties. And in New Mexico, a violation is fourth degree felony. <laughs> Wow. Yeah. In Michigan and Utah, a candidate who fails to vote as required is considered to have resigned and a replacement is appointed. So New Mexico I'm... is not messing around. 
Yeah, I mean, like, like it, you know, to resign them and a new one appointed, that makes the most sense. Like, that's that's not as personal as, mm-hmm. like, we're going to give you a felony for not voting the way you're supposed to. Mm-hmm. That's a little extreme. Well, and the, the majority of it, like, seeing them not vote the way that their party and the way that their constituents are voting is interesting because the majority of the people in the Electoral College are, like, party leaders mm-hmm. and whatnot. So... I don't know what their justifications are for just going on their own whim, but it I think happens. a lot of times I think a lot of times it's they think it I mean they think it probably won't matter anyway. I think that's really one of the reasons they do it. But but I, I also think it's because, you know, some people just have a hard time voting for someone they don't like. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, in the case of 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 Hawaii voting for Bernie Sanders, I remember when that came out, I was like, F yeah. Like <laughs> <laughs> I mean now that's totally not fair, you know. But at the time I was like, okay, well at least he got one, you know, because I felt so screwed <laughs> over by the whole Democrat party in 2016 of all the super delegates mm-hmm. and all that stuff, you know? So, so I think, you know, it's, I think it's somewhat, it's, a, it's just a statement or whatever, just to say, you know, Hey, don't forget about these people that you screwed over. Mm-hmm. But, but, I, but it, it, it's also, it, some people just, they just can't be made to do something that is against their, their soul, you know? And yeah. if they absolutely hate the person that, that won their party nomination, um, they have a hard time, hard time voting for that person even even if it doesn't even matter and you know they're going to win by a landslide anyway or lose by a landslide they still just don't want to be part of it you know and with all that said it kind of comes down to as well do we need to reform the electoral college and one of the most notable instances of when that came into question was the controversy surrounding the 2000 election between george w bush and al gore um, which I was just a youngin at the time, but do you, I guess, what do you remember from this? Oh my gosh. You just made me sound like I'm a million years old. Okay. Curtis, <laughs> you're not a million years old, but you're older than me. Uh, I'm like, how much older? Like five years older than you? Oh, wait, something like that. Right. How old are you? I don't even know. I'm 34. Okay. You're years. 10 years older than me. I'm 10 years. Oh my gosh. I am old. <laughs> <laughs> no. Okay. Yeah. No, I remember it. I guess you were m- pretty young. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, so in 2000, I would have been 14. Um, and uh, th- it was, there was absolute like anarchy uh, <laughs> going on. Um, like the, so basically Florida, um, it was a very close election. It was between Al Gore and, and George W. Bush um and florida was the um deciding factor it it Mm -hmm. came down to one state and the problem was in florida at least in some districts they had a really crappy um voting system that that was very confusing there's a picture of it that on one of the links on our notes um but it's it it basically it made it look like you were voting for for if you wanted to vote for the democrat like it like it would make sense that it would line up directly with the with the little punch hole that was right by it Mm -hmm. but instead the little punch hole actually went to the other side of the paper and it was and it was a another it was a third party candidate that you voted for so all these people who thought they were voting for a democrat uh, or at least said they they were voted for a third party by accident, and so so there was this whole like 
this, this whole thing about like determining whether or not they actually meant to vote for that other one, whether or not like it was fully punched in or because like in some cases people did a half punch for like the for the wrong mm-hmm. one and then like realized their mistake and then punched another one like mm-hmm. fully. But so they were had these people that were like showing, you know, looking at the like paper up to the 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 sun or whatever. And if you could see sunlight through it, it was a vote for it. I mean, it was, it was absolute like craziness, um, trying to determine what the actual will of the people in Florida was. Mm -hmm. And, and so it went on for, I want to say two or three weeks, um, trying to decide who actually won the presidency for, um, Um, 36 days. Okay. Yeah. Um, and and uh, there was all these accusations back, back and forth about miscounting, and mm-hmm. different people would look at the same vote and see it two different ways. Um, there's this whole thing about the hanging Chad, yeah. which is what the little little punch hole was. If it was like whether or not it was fully punched or halfway punched, <laughs> such a menial thing. Stupid. Yeah, it was so stupid. Um, and then so they did a bunch of recounts. There's a bunch of lawsuits. Mm-hmm. Well, it didn't because. Um, in Florida, Gore won the popular, but Bush won the elector elector vote, right? Right, um, and but it but it was very very like convoluted though. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's I think he did win the 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 popular vote, but it was also somewhat dependent on how you looked at the hanging chads, mm-hmm. <laughs> like because it, it came know. down to like five hundred and thirty votes. Yeah, absolutely it was, wild. It, that's so close. Um, mm-hmm. That's. That's astronomically close, and and so eventually the the Supreme Court um, they decided in favor of George W. Bush in a five four decision, um, and at the time it was very controversial because because it didn't feel like a real win. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if it it, it it would have been fine to lose for the Democrats, but it didn't feel like it was fair. Um, it felt like it was very arbitrary, and but I do understand having the time. The, the time sense to understand it and being an adult versus being 14 um, that <laughs> um, that, you know, basically the Supreme court, they didn't necessarily say that this had to be the way all they really said was we can't keep counting this. Like, like there's no way to actually determine whether or not these, these votes in question mm-hmm. were supposed to be for Al Gore um, and they, they basically just said, you know, for the, for the, the sake of the peace of the country, we need to move forward yeah. and this is as good as we're going to get. And it ended up being that, that George W. Bush won. And there was all kinds of repercussions for that. <laughs> yes. uh, well, um, even you know, within that, the Supreme court itself to raise a lot of questions because it was a five to four decision, which, right, you know, the, su- the, su- right, the Supreme court is supposed to be this standalone thing. And yeah. if it was, you know, a nine to zero vote, it would have been like, yeah, great. But because it was divided, all of a sudden it brings into question the true like objectivity of the Supreme Court at the time. Right. And, and I mean, I think that the Supreme Court actually made a good decision. I mean, there was really no right or wrong decision about it. Um, I mean, they basically just said we can't keep counting. They didn't necessarily say George Bush definitely won and, you know, and we're going to stand by it or something. So I, I think they I think they made as good a decision as they could. And I, I don't really blame them, but I do blame the state of Florida 
for for having yes. a very confusing ballot and and there's all kinds of little things that Florida has done over the years that I don't agree with but it's also why Florida is one of the states that is already counting their votes versus waiting for election day because they know that every every presidential election it ends up coming down to them mm-hmm. and they don't want to be in that position again so so they it actually has made them a more savvy smart um uh, I guess it's the same words, but you know, basically a more savvy like counter of of elections and and have improved quite a bit. Um, so I guess that's the one good one good thing that came out of it. And so what what this election did um, more than many before really was it brought into question of how how do we fix this? How do we stop this from happening again? And um, from two thousand one to two thousand six, most reform bills for the electoral college that were um, presented um, both at the state level and the national level were basically to follow the district system that Nebraska and Maine go by. Um, But starting in 2006 um, and it's picked up its pace um, even just since then is going by the national popular vote, but not in the sense that most people would think because it's still trying to cling on to this middleman that is the electoral college. And so what this reform does is basically instead of all of the state's electoral votes going towards the state's popular or popular vote winner, all of their elector votes go to the national popular vote winner, which which seems weird to me. I guess I don't at that point why wouldn't you just do a national popular vote? Um but so far no no one's been able to enact it. Um since 2006 every single state has considered this national popular vote electoral college system, but only 15 states including Washington DC have passed it, but none of them have been able to enact it because in order to enact a voter reform like this you need enough states to where their electoral votes equal 270 right now there's the 15 states in dc and it's at 196 electoral votes total um and so they need um they need 74 more um yeah 74 more they need 270 total but i i guess i don't I don't understand how that's like, I just, I just don't understand why you would keep if everyone's like, okay, the electoral college is outdated. Why, Mm -hmm. why keep the middleman and say, okay, we're still going to send our electoral votes, but it's going to be whatever the national popular vote is. Why not just say, oh, Hey, this is the national popular vote. Therefore the Republicans, the winner or the Democrats, the winner, like what's the point of the middleman? It's because they're trying to compromise between the two systems. Like, you know, basically what we've been having lately, and it's going to get worse, is we have a minority of people in the country that are that are controlling, um, you know, basically everything, um, even though they're not the majority. You know, so you know, like for example, Donald Trump lost the popular vote by three million, and yet he won. And, and, you know, that's not even the worst it could be. I think it's, I think I read something like, like someone could lose the popular vote by like seven or eight million, I mean, million or something like that. It was like way, way, way higher and still lose and still win the the presidency. Like you could win Mm -hmm. with all, 
these small rural states, even though the majority of, of people, I think it was like a third of, of the nation could vote for you and you could still win <laughs> something like that. <laughs> and so like, there's this, there's this argument, um, that, you know, that from the people who are losing power, which are pretty much conservatives, um, you know, in, in, um, that, that even though they have less, uh, people actually voting for them that they should still be in power because these voters are in rural areas um, and should count for more um, or just because like they're right and you're wrong and there's nothing you can do about it to get a <laughs> quote from Matilda um, you know and and like this idea of like it doesn't matter if more people are against you we still um, think that we're right and we want to rule over you um, so so and I think something like what we're talking about is kind of a compromise to where it's not exactly a, a, a winner uh, or a um, uh, majority rules type of voting system where just every vote counts for one vote. Um, it's still watered down a little bit, mm-hmm. but it's but, but it it moves toward the direction of better representation. Um, so it wouldn't rock the boat too much for the Republicans, and and but yet but yet everyone, including Democrats, that sometimes feel like even though they're more, they're losing and it's unfair. Um, it would make them feel better about the process, and and right. it would actually represent them better. So I think that's what they're trying to do. It's interesting. I, it's an interesting like way to circumvent the system without exactly throwing it out. Mm-hmm. Uh, most states, uh, most states that have passed it, started passing them passing the law around 2010, 2011 ish, um, right around there, and then I think the most recent state that passed it was in like 2017. I think, um, but it, it's growing more and more popular. And actually, um, California um, um, passed the law, but of course they haven't enacted it, which I was actually kind of um, surprised to see that. Um, but let's move I mean, on. Um, California is always ahead of the game, though, with things. That I is mean, fair. It, it, that shouldn't be surprising because they... Um, I mean, I, not that they're always right, but they're always sort of like <laughs> about 10 years ahead of yeah. what's coming everywhere else. <laughs> so, yeah, it's not not too surprising that, that they're for that. So let's chat a little bit about ways your voice has been silenced when it comes to voting. And um, not necessarily you directly, but I mean, just the way that voters' voices have been silenced over the years. Um and one that is actually very prominent today is um, the way felons lose their rights to vote, which I don't know a ton about, to be quite honest with you, um, but it sounds like you do. <laughs> okay, well, okay, so so I remember I, I was having a discussion with my parents about this, and, and I was like, you know, like, why is it that because you've committed some crime that you lose your right to vote? Mm-hmm. And they were like, well, because you're a felon. I'm like, yeah, I get that. But like, but, but why does that mean that you can't vote? <laughs> like, like, you know, and, and like, it doesn't, I guess it kind of comes down to that idea of, I may disagree with what you say, but I'll fight to the death for your right to say it. Yeah. You know, like, like in other words, you don't have to like somebody to fight for their rights. And so I'm not necessarily saying like, oh yeah, let's give all these, you know, felons like the right to vote because they're all great people. You know, of course not. Obviously they did something wrong. Some of them are really terrible people. You know, nobody's arguing against that, but, but it's a weird system that takes away their vote um, 
when they when they get arrested in some states forever, mm-hmm. um, some states just temporarily, or some states because they owe money or something like that. And it ends up what ends up happening though is because there's a disproportionate number of people in prison that are black um, and yeah. brown, but definitely but black is the it's it's the most. Um, and so because they're disproportionately arrested. And usually for kind of dumb things like smoking pot or something like that, mm-hmm. um, they are getting silenced more and more. And it's and it's eerily similar to what they were doing um, post-Civil War when black people first got their right to vote. And they would still try to stop them at every turn. So it kind of mm-hmm. just seems like a way to silence a, a type of person. Um, and there's not, I don't, I really understand the constitutionality of doing that. So recently Florida tried to undo this and they, mm-hmm. um, they, they, they voted, um, I think it was a citizen initiative actually, oh, wow. um, uh, to, um, to give felons the, the right to vote again. Um, and the argument was, you know, if you get arrested for something like, like, um, say a drug, um, tr- crime or something like that. Not only could you have reformed, and not only might you be a great citizen and and worthy of voting, but it actually like, like how do I put this? Like, like it is unconstitutional because you can't then fight against the system that right. put you away for something that you don't think sh- should have put you away for. You know, mm-hmm. if if you got arrested for for pot or something like that, something that was demonized fifty years ago, um, and 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 then you want to be a part of the change that makes pot legal you can't do that and it's 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 a slippery slope of like a smaller and smaller portion of the population that are good enough to make change and not and and you keep throwing away other people shoving them under the rug um and for quite a few things that are not always the fairest of 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 mm-hmm. um you know situations it kind of comes down to your question earlier, how you how you just said, um, you know, it takes away your ability to fight and like prove yourself to the system. Is you are no longer the decision maker. The yeah. people sitting in office are the decision makers. It's a, it's a trap because you know if if you like smoking pot, you're more likely to get caught for it. Mm-hmm. And if you're more likely to get caught for it, you're more likely to be a felon for it. If you're more likely to be a felon for it, then you're more likely to vote to to take away that law, but you can't, <laughs> you know? So it's, it's, it's like, it, it's a systematic trap over time that, that skews the vote against you and there's nothing you can do to fight it. It's really, it really sucks. Um, and so Florida tried to fix it, um, by giving this vote back. Um, and it, and it passed, I think pretty, pretty healthily, actually. I don't think it was that close. Um, but the governor, uh, I think it's Santos. um, he decided that arbitrarily that he would not give those people the vote back if they owed any money or restitution to the state. Um, and the word restitution really <laughs> kind of pissed me off. Yeah. <laughs> because you know who, who's been fighting for restitution <laughs> is black people who were, you know, their family were slaves that built this country. Right. Um, so, you know, so, so like, 
who owes who what, <laughs> I guess is kind of what it comes down to. Um, it's in, and, uh, and so it came to, so it made, it made it basically a, a poll tax is what it kind of became. And, mm-hmm. and a poll tax is a very, um, um, what's the word? So it's, it's a very heavily like used term for being prejudiced against people and preventing them from voting because that's what mm-hmm. they did during the civil war era. Um, and so it just, it's, I don't know. It just, I think it just reminded everyone and kind of rubbed them the wrong way of like how somebody could just arbitrarily decide that you don't deserve your vote. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and all this, you, you, so much of voter suppression has consistently been targeted through history, consistently been targeted on minorities, whether that's, Black people, just people of color, um, you know, immigrants from some European nations, um, or women. Or even women. Um, yep. You know, so much has been targeted towards minorities because, at the writing of the Constitution, guess who was given the right to vote? White men, <laughs> and even more so further than that, because it was states who decided it was landowning white men, and mm-hmm. that continued for so. <laughs> Long and then until um, the emancipation, you know, eighteen sixty-five. All of a sudden, okay, so it's you know, free white men. Well, even that they didn't even signify white because the only free men were white men, so it was inherent. And then all of a sudden, you get black men that are free, and they did everything in their power they could to stop them from voting. And mm-hmm. the the issue with emancipation and the end of slavery was. That the federal government said, hey, slavery is done. We're not doing it anymore. And they said, you know, everyone, every, you know, black man uh, freed from slavery will get a mule and, you know, three acres or whatever. The issue, however, was that the federal government never made a system, a centralized system of how this would be accomplished. They left it up to the states. And so when it came to voting and on everything else, the states did, or especially southern states, um, and I guess I don't know, I mean, racism was still a thing in northern states. Um, They created these different things to basically disenfranchise black Americans to stop them from voting. And one way you just said that still exists in some forms is a poll tax. And... That a poll tax is part of a grander thing called peonage. And what peonage is, is it was basically a capitalized form of um, slavery. And it was enacted um, most specifically in the South following um, um, the end of slavery, following Civil War, where basically because after um, um, after uh, black people were free from slavery. They, you know, they had no resources, so they had no choice but to share crop on um, white landowners' farms, and they would basically create these taxes, create these fees that the newly freed men had absolutely no way of paying for, and so it just kept them basically within their grasps. And what that's what these poll taxes did is they would create these poll taxes that. No one really ever had a chance to be able to pay, and therefore they they weren't able to vote. Like there was just no way that they were really going to get past that because they would make it so outrageous, and they would create these random, arbitrary, just nonsense fees 
that they knew no one could pay, but they wouldn't force that upon white voters. Um, and the other thing they did was they they imposed literacy tests yes. and like and like history tests. Mm-hmm. Um, and they would it would I mean they I think they would say it was for everyone, but they actually would only give it to black people. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know they would say things like um, name two of the purposes of the U.S. Constitution, or in which document or writing is the bill. Of, of writing is a bill of rights found, you know, things like that. And, and if you didn't get it correct, they could just say, nah, <laughs> you're mm-hmm. not, you don't have to, you know, you don't get to vote today, you know, come back, <laughs> come back never. And this uh, was, yeah. this was even all the way up to 1965 in Alabama. Right. It's and wild. That's what, that's what actually led to um, the uh, voting act of 1965. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that was actually just stricken down as unconstitutional by the Supreme Court in a 5-4 decision, um, mostly because they said it wasn't needed anymore. Yeah. But but in, uh, but it lasted up until, um, what was it, 2000, uh, 2012, something like that? Um, let's see. Uh, it lasted for 40 years. Um, and so... Originally, it was passed um, to try to squash the rest of these Jim Crow laws that were preventing people from voting. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, some of the changes that happened was um, it made it easier for people people to register to vote. Yeah. Um, it lower uh, it 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 it, uh, it made it so you could register at the DMV. Um, it uh, it made it so you could register at public assistant facilities. Um, it actually, um, it actually, it actually went along with the, um, the, um, the men, the 26th amendment, um, that happened, um, during, during the Vietnam era, Vietnam war era, where the, uh, age vote was dropped from 21 to 18, mm-hmm. um, so that adults from 18 to 20 could actually, uh, vote for the first time because <laughs> they weren't able to vote up to that point. Um, and so it, it was, it was, uh, it was, it was kind of went along with that as well. Um, it just basically just struck down anything that, that was deemed unequal, um, about the voting process. But one thing it still didn't address, and we talked earlier on the show about is gerrymandering, mm-hmm. uh, because gerrymandering. So the, the idea of shaping voter districts and whatnot is like its own thing, but gerrymandering in itself is changing and shaping those districts to either um, benefit your party or to negatively affect the opposing party. So shaping districts is it's a, it's something that just happens. That's how that's how districts are made. But gerrymandering, which is actually started by a Republican politician named something Jerry, um, in like. 18. Is it really? I didn't know that. Yeah, his last name is Jerry, but I, I can't remember exactly. Like, Actually, I've never heard that before. Yeah. And so he was a senator or something in like 1870. Um, I think it says in one of these sources. Um, okay. But he he did yeah, he did exactly that, where he shaped districts to benefit his party, so that the the way the districts were shaped, no matter what within each district, his party would get the majority votes. Right. And I mean, and so gerrymandering is always bad. It's always the the bad way of doing it. There is a good argument, though, and I'm not exactly sure where I fall on this, but there's a good argument 
for for making oddly shaped districts because what they what, what they're supposed to try to do is is kind of like take a population and, and equally divide them in a random way. Um, what the problem is when they when they don't just do it to make it an equal population, but when they use um, what party they're in to 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 partially shape it. Um, and the argument for doing that, which I don't agree with, is is uh, is they say that like let's say they have two black neighborhoods, heavily black neighborhoods, um, and a white neighborhood in between. What they'll do is is they'll they'll draw a very thin line between the two black neighborhoods and connect them into one district, and separate the white neighborhood into another district. And what they say they're doing, and there is a little bit of argument I guess for this, is that that uh, you know, people want to be represented by people that that they identify with, um, and that they that a lot of black people would want to be be represented by a black person, um, and therefore they 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 think they're doing a, a service to them in connecting those two neighborhoods um, versus watering it down, and like it's illegal to do it that way. But they but instead of by race, they say they do it by by. Uh, um, your party preferences, um, which is essentially the same thing if 90% of black people vote Democrat. Um, so I kind of get this idea of like wanting to be represented by someone who shares your values and your and your past. But at the same time, like it's it's certainly a very racist way of handling it to assume that that you know somebody's going to vote for somebody just because they're black or just because they're yeah. white or that you know that that somebody else can't represent you just because they're 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 different than you in your race or even you know in other factors um so it's it's kind of a lame argument but like like i i, I kind of get I, I don't think everyone does it to be evil i guess is what i'm trying to get to like i think some people do actually have good intentions i just think it's misfounded if you if you ever get the chance look up pictures of weirdly shaped districts I've because, seen it, yeah. Because the way that I know, I can't remember what state it is, but it's called like the headphone district because it looks like a pair of headphones. Yeah. yeah. Um, Chicago is a famous one because directly in the middle of Chicago, it's called like, I think it's the pizza district because it's basically <laughs> the shape of a slice of a pizza right in the middle of Chicago because it separates the Democratic voters within the city of Chicago from the Republican voters in the suburbs of Chicago. And it just so happens that it looks like a slice of pizza. <laughs> That's funny. I mean, it's it's funny because there's all these different games that get played, you know, to try to keep people from voting. Oh, and yeah. like one of the, one of the main things that like that is irritating right now is this idea of like states that make you register 30 days in advance versus states that let you register like like literally on election day. Um, you know, cuz a lot of people they're busy, they're they're not really that political, but you know, I don't know, two days before election, they're like, you know what, I want to vote, I want my voice heard. But in a lot of states in this country, if you don't decide you want to register to vote at least a month in advance, mm -hmm. your voice cannot be heard. They just completely ignore yeah. you, they won't let you vote. You know, so like, so Oregon is doing a really cool thing. Um, they they actually um, are the first, I think, believe the first state to opt in every eligible citizen to be registered to vote. Which, why um, would you not do that? Like, I mean, every, I when, when everyone turns, <laughs> um, or I guess every man, I, I, do you remember, did they change it that women have to enter the selective service as well? I don't know. I'm not sure about that. Um, but same example, you know, when, 
a man in America turns 18, you're automatically, you have to sign up for the selective service. So why would you not make it that as soon as you turn 18, you become a registered voter? I don't get it. I, I, I mean, it, I think the answer is because they don't want everyone voting, (laughs) you know, they they don't, the idea is, is they think that somebody should want to vote in order to register Mm -hmm. and not just be, um, opted in. It's actually what Donald Trump is kind of speaking against, um, with this idea of sending, um, um, mail ballots, um, to everyone who's registered instead of just the people who specifically ask for them, Mm -hmm. you know, like he doesn't exactly have a problem with mail-in voting. He actually has a problem with what he calls unsolicited ballots, which is a ballot being sent to you without you asking. Now, I have absolutely no problem with with ballots being sent out to every eligible voter. I think that makes so much sense. Cut out the middleman and and get act- people actually voting. You know, I mean, their worry is, I guess, that that there's going to be more fraud or something like that. Mm-hmm. But I mean, the amount of more more votes that you would get is so much better. But that's yeah. not the goal of a lot of people. They just want they want as few people as possible because they're a minority in the country, and they only win if less people vote. But and it's once again we talk about who the decision makers are, and to me, just automatically as soon as you turn eighteen, you're a registered voter. Like. In order, in order to vote, you have to register to vote. So in order to vote, you have to make the decision that you are going to. But even though it's like your constitutional right to vote and to choose who sits in office, you still have to sign up to even do that. And if you're not signed up, the people in elected office can tell you, well, no, you can't vote anymore. <laughs> you should not have to jump through hoops to vote. You it's should the, not have to. It's, you the, know, it's the voter's paradox. <laughs> <laughs> right. You should not have to stand in a line for eight hours. You know, you should not have to, um, you know, pass an aptitude test. <laughs> you know, you should you should not have to register to vote. I mean, you should just it's it, you're mm-hmm. a citizen. You should vote. Well, Simple even that no more complicated. Texas, because of the mail in ballot and we have a Republican governor, um, Greg Abbott, um, he passed a an order that limits every single voting district to only one place within or every county, I guess, whatever, um, to only one place within each, I guess it would be district or county, whatever, district, yeah. Um, yeah. but only one place within each district to turn in their mail-in ballots. So that to me, that is so limiting because not so everybody can afford, you know, when you have some of these districts where, you know, obviously like, Austin's, for example, Austin's district go it's you know surrounds Austin because it's this blue dot in the red state. But to water it down, Austin's district stretches in a really long, narrow line, like all the way down to the furthest point of southern Texas. It's very weird. And so someone who's way down on the border of Mexico in this district, like it, it's not a guarantee that they can afford to drive to Austin to turn in their mail-in ballot, you know? Nor do they always have time to do so. You know, like like exactly. in this election, every state is, is I think every state is allowing um, early voting of some kind, which mm-hmm. is great because it gives you plenty of time to take care of it whenever you want to do it. They're doing it because they don't want people all voting at the same time with COVID. But they should do it all the time because every time you make 
it easier to vote, you actually get a better representation of what the people actually want. You know, the more people that vote, the better the results will be. Um, and I believe, I mean, I don't mm -hmm. care if you're Republican or Democrat, you should want more people to vote, mm -hmm. you know, because it's so selfish to, to say, I don't want people to vote because my candidate won't win. Well, screw your candidate, you know, mm -hmm. like, like, like your candidate, it doesn't matter. My candidate doesn't matter. What matters is that people express their will and the right person wins, not the right person because of all these circumstances. Like as this country that's supposed to be this model of modern day democracy, why would you not make it so incredibly easy for the citizens to vote? Like why, why, why are there so many things put into place that you have to jump through these hoops and you have to do these things in order to enact your constitutional right? It's, it's, it's an odd concept. It's, it's straight up suppression. I mean, it's, it's, I, I, I don't know the argument against it. I mean, every I, I've heard a couple arguments, but they've all been pretty lame. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I don't I don't get it. It, it makes yeah. me very angry every every election. This election, you know, is probably the most fair that we've had um, mm -hmm. because of early voting and and mail in ballots and and making it easier or whatever, um, you know. But as no matter what party loses, the uh, the party that loses is going to be like, oh, well, that's not fair. Let's go back to the old system when we used to win, <laughs> you know. And it's like <laughs> it's so annoying. It's the paradox, like you said. Mm -hmm. It's just you know, does my vote matter? Does it not? Um, you know, is anyone <laughs> even listening? <laughs> it's, it's so funny, right? So right before we started recording this episode, um, I uh, we wrote the. Um, the notes pages and at the top you know we have the title of the episode episode 14 and i just wrote voting with an exclamation point and curtis was like is that actually the title we're like no let's think it's something so we sat there just thinking and then we came up with the voters paradox or the voting paradox whatever it is um, and the more we've got through this episode it's like oh my god it's real <laughs> it's, it's a real thing i i mean i always tell people you know you'd have to just take for faith that your vote counts because mm -hmm. the alternative is you don't vote and and then some something or someone gets passed it passed into office yeah. or you know a law gets passed or whatever that you that you hate and you had no part in it whatsoever you know it's so like you only get to complain if you at least tried mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> to vote when you know, when all is said and done your try like it's a whole other debate yeah. but you know don't keep it simple stupid you know like <laughs> just you know like <laughs> if you hear that 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 phrase you know mm -hmm. like like just vote let everything else fall into place as it will but at least you did your part like yeah. that's 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 what i always say like don't don't take it for granted we live in a country however messed up it is where we have the opportunity to decide who is in office and whether it ends up being the person you support or not the fact that the people made that happen, whether they're direct voters or the electors, is something that's incredible that we get to live with. Because there are countries in this world where the people have right absolutely now. no choice. Yeah. And they haven't for the entire existence of their country. Regardless of all this, regardless of the suppression, regardless of how confusing the electoral college is, regardless of what the founders meant, go vote. It's our <laughs> civic duty 
It's what we do to help this country move forward. And whether you think your vote doesn't count or not, if you do it, you're taking your part and you're doing what you can by placing your vote because that's sometimes all we can do. So just go vote. Just do it. It's as simple as that. Just vote, whether it's absentee, bring, mail-in, bring early, or election. Yes, definitely. <laughs> don't, and, just, don't just vote yourself. Get others to vote with wear you. Wear that sticker proudly, okay? <laughs> um, if you if you have any questions about voting, actually, um, within any election, um, go to vote.org. Simple as that. They will... That has literally every information about everything that you need about voting. If you need to figure out the rules of absentee balance, the rules of mail-in, if you need to figure out where your um, stations are where you can go vote in person, if you need to figure out if you're registered, literally anything about voting, go to vote.org. So if you're confused, go to vote.org because it will have the answer for you. (laughs) When all said is done, y'all... The most you can do sometimes is just vote. And that's kind of what all this sums up to. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, I mean, I guess that's the end of the episode. <laughs> like, I mean, there it's all so confusing and voter law and everything that's around it is so confusing. And we did the best we could in this short period to make somewhat sense of it and the history of it. But it, it all boils down to... The vote is what you got, so you might as well use it. With that said, Curtis, do you have anything you want to plug for this episode? I, I think it's very appropriate just to just to uh, plug the different organizations that that help you um, understand how to vote. Um, Headcount is one of my favorite yeah, that's good uh, one. resources for young people, especially. It's for everyone, but it's really its its mission was was specifically to get young people voting because they're the least likely to go out and do it, and they're the voice that is needed the most in this country right now. So if you're a young person, seek out headcount, vote.org, um, vote. Mm. <laughs> it's, it's it's so important. It actually does make a difference because they wouldn't spend millions and millions and millions of dollars to convince you if it if it was just, you know, doesn't if it didn't matter. So also too, if, if you do sincerely feel that your vote doesn't count for anything, get involved. Go down mm-hmm. to your local office, like get involved in the process if you want a hands-on like interaction and a hands-on impact with the election, get involved, go volunteer, go apply for a job at your local office, go just get involved. It's a great way to have a first person impact on the process. If you don't, if you genuinely don't feel like your vote is enough, go step in and see if you can help out somehow. But yeah, I mean, Curtis, you have anything else? No, I think that's good. All right, y'all. When you're done listening to this, uh, go vote. So uh, we'll talk to y'all later. Bye. Thank you for listening to Social Discord, part of the Podcast Without Borders Network. You can get a hold of us by sending us an email at pwbnetwork at gmail.com. You can also check out our website at podcastwithoutborders.com. Thanks for listening.